everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So thrilled to have you joining us today. You can catch us live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. EST. And we have a great show for you tonight. First, I'm going to play for you an interview I did with Saru Jayaraman, the president of One Fair Wage. Then Saru and I are joined by Academy Award-winning actor and activist Susan Sarandon and longtime New York City restaurant worker and One Fair Wage organizer Jenny Almansar. Then I'm going to play you part of an interview I did with economist Richard Wolf. And this is a Patreon-only interview, so you can find that full interview at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. It's a Patreon-only interview, but I'm playing part of it. I'm playing a kind of a, a, a preview, a sneak peek at the full interview on tonight's show. And again, when you support the show at Patreon at the $5 a month level, you get extended interviews and bonus content like the full Richard Wolf interview. And if you support the show at $1 a month, which I encourage everyone to do because that's just $12 a year, you help make the show happen. We literally couldn't bring you the show without Patreon support. So thanks so much to everyone who already supports us on Patreon. And as always, you can support the show for free just by liking the stream as well as the clips that we release. And to do that, you just press the thumbs up. Uh, Please subscribe by hitting the subscribe button and then the bell. That way you won't miss any of our upcoming streams. And some upcoming guests include Ajimu Baraka and Michael Hudson. Also, you you can become YouTube members and that gives you special badges and emojis and also gets your comments read. And a major announcement. I will be doing a live taping of the Katie Helper Show on June 10th with special guest Brianna Joy Gray. The exact time and location will be announced next show, the next stream that we do next Tuesday at 7 p.m. But for now, save the date, the evening of Saturday, June 10th, and I'll be in New York City. Now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Saru Jayaraman, the president of One Fair Wage and director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Saru is also the author of One Fair Wage, Ending All Subminimum Pay in America. You can find out more about One Fair Wage at onefairwage.site, and you can find out more about their New York campaign, which Susan Sarandon got arrested over, at onefairwage.site slash New York. So, Saru... Tell us about the One Fair Wage Coalition, what it is and what it does. Um, So we are a national organization of 300,000 restaurant and service workers and about 3,000 restaurant owners, uh, all working together to fight to raise wages across the country, particularly in the service sector, and to end all subminimum wages in the United States. So we have... Oh, do you want me to say more? Um, You know, we're going through an incredibly historic moment. We've been at this for over 20 years. Uh, We're going through an incredible, incredibly historic moment where millions of workers are refusing to work for some minimum wages. Thousands of restaurants are raising wages to recruit staff. And so we decided it was time to go big, very historic moment. 
We are moving bills and ballot measures in 25 states by the United States 250th anniversary, which is 2026. We call it our 25 by 250 campaign. Um, and New York is one of 25 states that are on a pathway to end subminimum wages. We already won this uh, last year in both D.C. and Michigan. Uh, it's already the law in seven states. So New York really needs to follow, not even lead at this point, but follow the trend of what's happening. And tell us about the history of this movement. Yeah. So sadly, this whole issue has an incredibly uh, racist history in the United States. So tipping originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. Serfs and vassals in feudal Europe got wages. They didn't live on tips. Uh, and they that idea came to the States in the 1850s when rich Americans came to the U.S. and started showing off that they knew the rules of Europe. And at first, Americans resoundingly rejected it. Seven states passed bans on tipping. But in 1853, waiters in New York, who are mostly white men, didn't get tips, lived on wages, went on strike for a higher wage. And in response, the restaurant industry started looking for cheaper labor. First, they replaced them all with white women, trying to pay them less. And then uh, after 1865, saw newly freed slaves as an opportunity to basically get free black female labor and tell these workers, sorry, you're not going to get a wage from us. You're going to have the privilege and opportunity of getting white people's tips. Uh, in 1919, the Restra National Restaurant Association formed in an effort to solidify that into law, to make it law that these workers didn't get a wage, they only got tips. And they succeeded in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody else got the right to a federal minimum wage, but these workers were excluded. In 1960, New York passed its own state minimum wage and followed the federal in excluding these women from getting an actual wage. And every time since 1960 that New York State has raised its wage, these women have been left out. Now, I will say, meanwhile, in that time period since 1960, Seven states have gotten rid of this system, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska, all require a full minimum wage with tips on top. And despite what you might hear from the Restaurant Association, those seven states actually have higher restaurant sales per capita than New York, higher job growth than New York. We have higher tipping averages here in San Francisco than New York City. Um, you know, we have higher um, small business women and people of color own businesses in California than New York's state. So look, um, it is uh, proven not only to work, but to actually be more successful to pay people a full minimum wage with tips on top. It is simply the ongoing money power and influence of that trade lobby, the National Restaurant Association, over the last 100 years since 1919 to basically ensure that they alone and nobody else doesn't have to pay the minimum wage. What got you involved in this movement? So um, I uh, was a young attorney organizer in New York when 9-11 happened. On September 11th, there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One, called Windows on the World. And on that morning of 9-11, 73 workers died in the restaurant and about 250 workers lost their jobs. And I was asked as a young attorney organizer to start a relief center for the families of the victims and the workers who had lost their jobs at Windows on the World. And one of the first things we did after 9-11 was to start 
asking workers, what do you want? What do you need? And everywhere in New York and all over the country, when we asked workers their, their desires and top priorities and concerns, they kept saying, my wages, my wages, my wages. And then when we looked at the government data, it showed that, in fact, the restaurant industry has been one of the largest and fastest growing private sector employers in the United States for decades. It was 14 million workers pre-pandemic. That's one in 10 American workers. But it's been the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States for generations dating back to emancipation, as I said. Wow. And what are some of the most important persistent talking points put out by the restaurant industry that are either wittingly or unwittingly parroted by people? Well, it's so important to know when you say wittingly or unwittingly, the Restaurant Association in 2016 uh, basically was so was was so angry because we won this issue on the ballot in Maine. We raised the minimum wage to 12 and we ended the subminimum wage for tipped workers in Maine. It was most popular ballot measure in the history of the state. I got to tell you, New Yorkers, over 70% of New Yorkers in a recent poll said, of course, we think everybody should get a full minimum wage with tips on top. Every state we go to, red, blue, purple, people say yes, of course. So we won this on the ballot. Uh, The Restaurant Association wanted to overturn it. So that year, of course, was the year Trump got elected. They hired Trump's communications firm because they were so impressed with how Trump basically was able to convince working people that voting for him was in their best interest. So they hired the Trump-Pence communications firm and created what they call an AstroTurf PAC, um, a corporate-created PAC called Save Our Tips, where they essentially went around distributing the idea that if wages went up, tips would go down, which of course is ludicrous because the states with the highest wages have the highest tips. Um, Look, you don't have to take it from me. The CFO of Denny's in 2021 was caught red-handed telling shareholders on an analyst call, you know, Denny's is growing faster in California than any state in the U.S. Why? Because we pay our people 15 plus tips. So they do what? They eat out because they can and they tip better because they can. So consumer spending is higher. Tipping is higher. And so it was completely false information. They knew it to be true from their own data, but they started spreading this misinformation. And of course, remember that was a time of fear. And so they stoked this fear that tips would go away if wages went up. Um, when in fact the cities with the highest tipping averages pay one fair wage and the state with the highest tipping average of any state in the U.S. is Alaska. It has had the full, the same minimum wage for tipped and non-tipped workers for decades. So um, they spread this. This is one of their major talking points. Workers don't want this because their tips will go away. That's been one thing. Of course, they always love to say the industry will collapse. Jobs will be lost. You know, Uh, they also like to say that We don't need to pay them a full minimum wage because the law requires employers to ensure that tips bring you from that sub-minimum wage to the regular minimum wage or the employer is supposed to pay the difference. Now, under the Obama administration is when we saw the highest levels of enforcement of that law. The Obama administration made a concerted effort to try to get, see whether restaurants were actually making up that difference. They found an 84% violation rate with regard to employers actually ensuring that tips bring you to the full minimum wage and make up the difference. And at that point, the Obama administration changed its position. They went from being for a sub-minimum wage to being for a full minimum wage with tips on top, which, by the way, is also where Joe Biden is. 
uh, because they said this is unenforceable. There's no way for us to go to every one of thousands of restaurants and ensure for every hour a worker works that the minimum that the employers are counting are the tips bringing you to the full minimum wage and making up the difference. They everybody has said it would just be cleaner and easier for both the worker and the employer to just pay a minimum wage and let the tips be on top of that. Frankly, as they were always intended to be since feudal times. Can you talk about the relationship between New York State Governor Kathy Hochul, her husband, William J. Hochul, and the restaurant industry? Yeah. So I will say to her credit, Governor Hochul, uh, during the pandemic, came to a public event at the Ford Foundation, said, look, I'm a former tipped worker. Uh, you know, I know this is a priority. We have to end the subminimum wage for tipped workers. She said that publicly. Um, and when she first got elected on the heels of a major sexual harassment scandal, uh, she, you know, her office reached out and said, we think this is a priority. We want to work on this. Um, because look, the restaurant industry has the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States. We worked with the foremost professor, legendary law professor, Catherine McKinnon, who has studied sexual harassment. She has said, there is no industry I've ever studied with a higher rate of sexual harassment than tipped workers, including the military, she said. She said, I've also never seen a policy more effective at cutting sexual harassment than paying people a full minimum wage. She said that policy is even more effective than making sexual harassment illegal, which has been her life's work. Why? Because we find that there is a way in which sexual harassment is essentially in the workplace about power, your ability to say no, to reject the behaviors of the harasser. And for a woman in New York, she's relying on the tips. You have to put up with whatever they do to you. On the other hand, in California, a woman gets a full $15 plus tips. If somebody tries to do something to her, she can say buzz off because she knows she can count on the wage from her boss like every other worker in every other industry. It's not that she doesn't get a wage. It's that she is not completely relying on the wage. So Catherine McKinnon said, this is the way to curb sexual harassment. Governor Cuomo in 2017 said he was going to end the subminimum wage for tipped workers as a way to address sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. He announced that during that height of the Me Too moment. So when he was, when he had to resign due to sexual harassment scandals and Governor Hochul came in, she said this is one of her top priorities. It is a way to address the very issue that made her governor. And Initially, we were very encouraged, but the governor's office has backed off, and we are we are concerned that there is this relationship between the governor and the restaurant association in that her husband is the vice president of one of the largest restaurant corporations in New York, a major player in the restaurant association. And so I do think I do think the governor knows the, that this is an issue. She has said it. She has experienced it herself as a former tipped worker. And we call on her now, particularly post-pandemic, and how much these workers suffered um, and how much we relied on them and how much these workers are leaving this industry. I mean, even, look, even Veselka's, which is such a popular 24-hour diner, has announced they can no longer be 24 hours because they don't have enough staff. When you reach that level of staffing crisis, you have to raise the wage, your only other option is to do what the Restaurant Association wants you to do, which is allow kids to work in restaurants. And I would hope New York is not going to regress to the 30s when kids were working in restaurants. You know, it, it is it is a moment to come to terms with something that's been really bad all along and just got much worse for both workers and employers. 
So we're hoping she'll listen to not just workers, but these great small businesses that hundreds of them that have raised raised wages to recruit staff in the midst of a staffing crisis and are saying, we need this. Small business owners are saying, we need this. We need policy to make this a level playing field so that Denny's and IHOP have to pay this as much as we do. But also they're saying we're raising wages and it's not enough. We still can't get enough workers to come back because they don't trust that these are permanent wage increases. So until we make it the law, we're never going to have enough workers to work in this industry to enjoy the dining experience we've enjoyed in the past. And you, speaking of harassment, you attended the Golden Globes in 2018 with Amy Poehler as part of a, an action to address sexual harassment. What was that like and how did that happen? Yeah, so yes, at the kind of the moment when the Me Too kind of phenomenon exploded late late 2017, early 2018, um, you know, Up was formed. A group of kind of celebrities in Hollywood came together, really kind of buoyed by a letter from farm workers uh, saying, we stand with you. Uh, and decided they wanted to make make a statement at the Golden Globes. And Amy Poehler was part of that and chose to call me because she had worked in restaurants for many, many, many years and had experienced the sexual harassment that we talk about is so prevalent in our industry. So she called me and said, will you join me? Will you be my date to the Golden Globes? To be honest with you, <laughs> the first thing I did is turn to my husband and said, what is the Golden Globes? <laughs> And he said, I don't know, Google it. So we both Googled it and found out what it was and uh, ended up going. And it and it really did change the dynamic of um, people understanding how, look, people have to understand women in our industry don't just have to tolerate harassment. They are told by their managers, look, you have to dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing. That's how you're going to make more money and tips, which means they're not told to tolerate the harassment. They're told to encourage it. In fact, the more they can encourage it, the greater tips they supposedly will get. So this is an industry with not just the highest rates of harassment, it's the highest rates of assault. And it has lasting impacts on women because I've, I've interviewed so many older women who've told me, you know, I I worked in the industry in my youth. I've been harassed later in life, but I it, I didn't do anything about it later in life because it was never as bad as when I was a young woman working in restaurants, which means that our industry isn't just the worst for its current workers. It sets the standard for women and men for their lifetimes in a lot of other sectors of what is acceptable, legal, ethical, moral in the workplace. And it's a horribly low standard in which, again, women aren't told to tolerate it. They're told to encourage it. I had a young woman tell me, you know, I, I was regularly slapped on the butt and I tried to tell my boss or coworkers and they all laughed at me. And my coworker said, you're so lucky to get it while you're still young. Because if you get harassed, that means people like your look and it means you'll make more money in tips. And that is what's fundamentally wrong with forcing a a workforce of women to have to rely on the biases and harassment of customers to feed their children rather than having those tips be an extra or bonus on top of a wage they can count on like every other worker. And any final words in terms of what you want from people watching, what you want from uh, uh, politicians when yeah. the vote, when you think action will be taken on this issue? 
Yes, I want everybody to understand we are in a historic moment of worker revolt. (laughs) You know, it's the first time since emancipation that literally millions of workers are walking off the job, refusing to work for these wages. In New York has actually faced the worst exodus of restaurant workers of any state in the United States. One in 10 workers has left the restaurant industry nationally. One in five workers has left the industry in New York. It is why you see help wanted signs everywhere. It is why your favorite restaurant is closed on Tuesdays because they don't have enough staff willing to work on Tuesdays. Uh, And that has led to thousands of restaurants nationally and over 500 restaurants in New York now paying a full minimum wage or higher voluntarily. We're seeing restaurants, some restaurants in New York paying 30 and $35 plus tips because they can't get staff to come back any other way. And so many of those restaurants have joined forces with workers to say enough is enough. The time has come. We need policy now that will end the subminimum wage for tipped workers because we can't get workers to come back to this industry any other way. Uh, Workers have just reached their limit. And we just raised the minimum wage in New York to $17 an hour a few weeks ago as part of the budget. Let us not please repeat the same history that we've been repeating since 1865 of once again excluding these workers. Let's ensure they finally, this session, before June 8th, when the session ends, get a full minimum wage with tips on top. Also, can you tell this anecdote about what happened when you uh, went to Albany? Was this oh, when yeah. Susan was uh, yeah, arrested? I was this the that time? Story. Okay. <laughs> oh, I also, can I say just a few more words about the report we released today yeah, about the child labor laws? Um, the truth is that this is truly a fight between a, a, a special interest trade lobby that's been around for a hundred years and the vast majority of people, red and blue, who agree with this. So on the one hand, the National Restaurant Association has been fighting to main this, maintain the subminimum wage since 1919. With the pandemic, they don't have enough staff. So we just released a report today that they are out there spearheading the weakening of child labor laws in order to be able to recruit children because they can't find enough adults. That is at a moment when the restaurant industry is actually the largest violator, even in New York, of child labor laws. 62% of child labor law violations occur in the restaurant industry. So they want the ability to basically hire kids without impunity, without any kind of legal repercussions, have them serve alcohol, have them work till nine o'clock because they can no longer find adults willing to work for these wages. On the other hand, the overwhelming majority of New Yorkers support this. 70% of New Yorkers support this. And it isn't just Democrats. We in November, 2020, were up in Albany uh, just after the election trying to get state legislators to focus on this issue and pay one fair wage. It happened to be the same day that the MAGA folks were there in Albany protesting the Electoral College of New York, putting forward Biden as the nominee. They thought it was fraud and Trump should be the nominee. So they were there right next to us, a bunch of people of color who had come up from New York City fighting for one fair wage. We were terrified. We didn't realize they would be there. We thought they'd come over and do something to us. In fact, they finished their rally, started coming over. We didn't know what would happen. They came over and asked us, what are you here for? We said, we're here for a full minimum wage of $15 for restaurant workers with tips on top. They said, yeah, that's totally fair. And they joined our rally. So funny. And and, and listen, two Republicans have signed on to our bill in, in Albany. This is a bipartisan issue. This is an issue that most humans agree with. When you work, you should be paid by your employer. And it's just, it's just New York State electeds listening to the Restaurant Association 
that have held this up. And so we call on them to listen to the people of New York rather than the Restaurant Association. Anyone you want to put on blast in particular? (laughs) Um, Well, we really, it's not to put on blast. It's to say, please, Governor Hochul and Speaker Hastie and uh, Senate Majority Leader Andrew Stewart-Cousins, please listen to people and to workers and to small business restaurant owners and even to some of your Republican constituents who are saying it is time to pay these people a full minimum wage. It's time to pay women Women of color, single moms, don't leave them out a full minimum wage with tips on top. Yeah, we're calling them in, not putting them on blast. That's right. (laughs) They're calling them in. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Saru. Thank you for having us. Thank you for uplifting this issue. Now I'm bringing on Susan Sarandon, the Academy Award-winning actor and activist, and Jenny Almansar, a longtime New York City restaurant worker and organizer with One Fair Wage. And don't go anywhere after this because I'm playing part of a Patreon-only interview I did with economist Richard Wolf. Susan, what made you get involved in this coalition, this campaign? Well, I don't think I would have even known about it if it hadn't been for Nina Turner calling me, which goes to show how desperately they need to make this an issue uh, bring it to the public because this has been going on every every time the minimum wage was voted upon. This particular group of people, mostly women, uh, mostly women of color. It's the industry that has the largest amount of single moms in it. That has always been scooped out of the deal and told they had to live on their tips and not get whatever the minimum wage hike that was going on. And um, I'm a mom. I've been a single mom. I've been a waitress. I played a waitress. <laughs> I've been a waitress. And it's just, you know, this is your, they're your brand ambassadors. They're so important and it's just so unfair. So, I, you know, I had a space and I went to Albany and I was happy to sit with everyone and to try to uh, support this bill that's coming up uh, for a vote in June and uh, meet the people who had, uh, you know, introduce the bill and stand with them and try to uh, get a chance, just like you're doing now, to tell people what's been going on with these these workers who are also incredibly harassed uh, in terms of of a of a of a job. You know, they they get a lot of harassment and they're kind of stuck because they need the job and uh, so they need to be paid more. It's only what's fair, one fair wage. Yes, right. And so you were arrested. What made you, how did, how did that transpire? Well, um, I already knew ahead of time that I, uh, you know, during the action, if, if it came time to be arrested, that I would. And um, so we were blocking an entrance, but they were very clever. You know, they knew when the bus left that brought the bulk of people. And so they were trying to wait us out so that fewer people could be arrested. So I went to the head of the line. I used my celebrity to be one of the first <laughs> arrested. <laughs> and um, and it, they were very uh, civil. You know, I don't think the Proud Boys really cared whether or not waitresses were getting a wage or they didn't know about it. Or whatever. But we had no, no violence. It was peaceful. And we just blocked an entranceway and joined hands and then held a banner to try to be a little bit stronger. And, um, and actually, the guy that was reading me, you know, before they pick you up, before they take you to be booked... They tell you, you know, they give you a chance to leave. They'd say, you know, if you don't get out now, then you're arrested. And he was so flustered, this young guy. I just found myself telling him, it's okay. It's okay. You know, it's going to be all right. 
And then later I was talking to the gal who was in charge of everything, who was booking. There, there were three of us at a time in her office. She said, well, you know, we're just so tired. You know, there's a lot of demonstrations these days in Albany. And, you know, and I explained to her why we were there and what was going on. And I said, uh, you know, you can be part of this. You're not the enemy. You can be part of this. Of course, you have to do your job. But we're just trying to get the word out because this isn't a sexy uh, issue that uh, people are talking about on major, it's not going to get a push on CNN or MSNBC or Fox, you know. So actually, you're part of what's helping us do this. And um, I kind of like that idea that, you know, even though they have to arrest you, that they're in fact part of the process to make people understand what's happening. Tell us about your experience as a waitress. Well, you know, that's one of those jobs I um, that you take you know, I was living at home the first time that I waitressed. I was I was pretty young, and I never could be a cocktail waitress though because I never could remember what I always screwed up the oranges and the onions and the. I just never really learned how to make a good cocktail, so that part of it was out for me. So I really was just serving food, which I think is maybe easier than when liquor's involved because, of course, sometimes people get crazy. But as one of the uh, owners of Spin. Uh, my ping pong um, thing, that uh, club slash restaurant, I I was, it was very difficult to try to get whoever was in charge of the clubs to understand because spin is kind of part hospitality and part nightclub. And honestly, people just assume that if you're in a nightclub, everyone's an asshole. And so they treat the girls badly. And I kept saying, you know, these involve them in the process, have them tell us what we need, have them tell us what to do differently, because they are the ambassador of your brand. And that's when I first started, you know, hands on with the gals and talking to them and and really having a relationship. I'm not really part of spin anymore. But um, so I don't know what's going on now. But it was a hands on experience, both, you know, both sides I've been on. So, um, and I understand that they, it's a, it's a, you know, there's a prejudice against women that still exists in these, for a lot of people in the restaurant industry that still exists. They treat women differently than they would men. Right. Jennifer, we're going to bring you in. So Jenny, tell us how you got involved in One Fair Wage. Yes, I'm actually, I was a former bartender. I started during the pandemic, July of 2021. Um, I lost my job. um, So I was dependent on that while I waited for unemployment. And I was getting paid $5 an hour. It was completely some minimum wage. So I was entirely dependent on tips. But by that point, that was my only option for work. I I had just come out of college. They weren't really hiring. So I became an organizer uh, for our revolution of February 2022. And I was still being, I was a part-time bartender by then. And then um, yeah, I found out about one fair wage in which I didn't even know some minimum wage was a thing. Like, you know what I mean? I just felt like as bartenders, that's what we make. You know, we just depended entirely on tips. But that's also not fair. You know, I didn't have protections at all. I didn't have health care. Um, you know, if it was entirely on my paycheck, I would have gone home with like $200 a week. That's not even enough for like, you know, utilities and like uh, food in New York City. Um, so yeah, I stopped, I stopped bartending, um, a, a month ago and I'm actually suing, um, the, the person that I worked with, um, for, um, because I'm still off, uh, tips. Um, so we're getting together eight of us and we're suing. 
So we're going to start that battle now. Wow. Wow. What other stories are important, do you think, for people to know, either your stories or stories of other people you've worked with to shed light on why this is such an important issue? I think it's very important because in New York City, you know, people think glamour is like high-end restaurants. The reality is like I was working at a dive bar. There are so many dive bars and small um, bars and restaurants in New York City that people that folks are making um, some minimum wage. That's a reality. I spoke to so many bartenders and service. I made a lot of friends and allies. I've introduced sense to one fair wage, which they didn't even think, you know, I was educating them because they don't even know about it. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to just, you know, get the word out for as many people. Saru, let's bring you in, too. Is there anything you want to add to this part? Well, I, I just think that everything that Susan and Jenny have described, people have to understand, was has been horrible for 100 100- and 50 years since this whole practice was created at emancipation, as Susan said, for mostly women, women of color, single moms. But it got just so much worse with the pandemic. I mean, I'm sure Jenny can speak to this, but during the pandemic, so many workers reported tips went way down because sales went down. Harassment went way up. As Susan said, this is the industry with the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry because it's mostly women and moms having to put up with so much to get those tips from customers. During the pandemic, that harassment reached a whole new level. We heard from so many women. I'm regularly asked, take off your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much I want to tip you. We heard that so frequently. We published a report with 600 comments women sent in that they had heard from customers along those lines. And we ended up calling it masculine harassment because it was so pervasive. Uh, And it really, frankly, to me, it outed what we always knew, but most people don't know which is that, you know, we think tipping in the U.S. is entirely based on the quality of service, whether the person is a good server or not. If you hear customers say, take off your mask so I know how much to tip you, you know that's not based on how good of a server she is. It's based on whether they like your look, your face, your body, and you're essentially selling yourself to get those tips. It makes you so vulnerable to the biases and harassment of customers. And so if we are committed as New York State or frankly as a country to any kind of equity, any kind of fairness, then you know your ability to feed your children should not be based on whether a man likes your face. It should be based on how good of a service you perform on the job. And uh, Jenny, what kind of uh, experiences did you have that made you realize how important one fair wage is? Well, I, like just like Basari was saying about having masks on, I, I used to get harassed constantly on the regular. I think it made me so much more resilient being a bartender because you. this is like on a daily basis. I'm like being harassed by men. Um, oh, you're not being nice enough. Oh, why are you, why are you so stressed out? I'm like, I have so many, you know what I mean? So this is like, sorry, was saying it's, such a reality it's not just studies like it is a reality like I was a worker and I was facing these things um and I went in during the pandemic so my tips were low from the beginning so I didn't even get to see uh, pre-pandemic versus you know post-pandemic um but yeah and and you're sick now is that you sound like you're wearing a mask I'm sick I'm like a little worried it's COVID so gonna have my protection yeah and where are you on your way to right now I'm, I'm going to a Queens event. We're having a one fair wage event in Queens to honor mothers for Mother's Day. As you know, we were left behind from 
the $17 um, increase in um, minimum wage that just passed. So we're doing one last push trying to, you know, get the word out. Actually have like a big sign that we, you know, brought in for the Albany. Um, and yeah, we're going to be joined by Je- um, Assemblywoman Jessica Rojas. Oh, great. Awesome. And um, Susan, what else have you learned uh, from participating in this? Well, I definitely hadn't really thought about the history. I didn't understand that this has been going on every single chance that the um, restaurant lobby gets in there, you know, that it, it they've managed to buy everybody. Um, so I didn't, I didn't understand that. I knew that the minimum wage itself was a problem, you know, working for Bernie, you know, going around and, and talking about raising the minimum wage, which now should be raised even more than $15. Um, you, I heard stories then, but I didn't understand that the, that this industry, that these women, that these people were specifically denied every single time there was a step forward. I didn't really know that, you know, I certainly knew how essential these, you know, this service has always been. But I didn't know that there was a history of picking on that, even when all, you know, car parkers or whatever they're called, valets and all these people were were getting a boot up that they had somehow managed that everybody agreed to just cut women out, to just cut waitresses out. It, that was really shocking to me. So that's why I think it's important, and I thank you for doing this, uh, for people to understand. And, you know, when you talk about waitresses in Europe not getting tipped that much, they have health care. You know, they have higher minimum wage. So it's a completely different scenario, and they're less stressed. Uh, so they can, you know, they have a good shot at doing it their job well without that kind of stress to, to put up with harassment and everything. Um, so people don't understand that too when they say, oh, we don't have to tip that much here. Yeah, there's a reason because that's a country like most free countries that has a safety net for people uh, and a high minimum wage. That's right. Yeah. Can I just um, add to something Susan saying, can you hear me okay? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, there, you know, it, it it's crazy that this population keeps getting left out because they're not they're not a tiny population. In fact, they are the largest workforce of minimum wage workers. So basically every time the minimum wage goes up, we exclude the largest workforce of minimum wage workforce and workers at the federal level, at the state level, and certainly the largest employer of minimum wage women, certainly the largest employer of immigrants people of color, you know, as we said, single mothers. And there's a reason for it. It is an entity called the National Restaurant Association. It wields enormous power in state, in both the New York State Legislature and Congress. Unfortunately, at the moment, even our governor is married to a vice president of a major national restaurant corporation that is a leader in the Nas- in the Restaurant Association. Um, so the relationships between elected officials and the Restaurant Association is just unfortunately, so entrenched that it becomes very hard to move these issues. Uh, And it's important to note, actually, we just released information today, new information today. So earlier this year, we had worked with the New York Times to expose the fact that over the last two decades, the Restaurant Association has doubled its lobbying dollars. And we had always thought that was because restaurants like IHOP and Denny's and Applebee's were giving more money to the Restaurant Association to fight us. 
Turns out, 2018, we found out, no, in fact, they had created a scheme where they had created a, a wholly owned company called ServeSafe to do food safety training. And they had gone around to states and made workers pay for this training and then use this money from workers to then lobby against those same workers' wage increases without these workers knowing about it. So there are a lot of bad lobbies out there, oil and gas and Walmart. I mean, there's a lot of bad lobbies out there. This is a lobby that reached a whole nother level of sadistic genius. They figured out how to get the very low wage workers they're lobbying against to pay for their lobbying efforts. So disgusting. <laughs> wow. It's On so top dark. of that, we released a report showing that using that stolen money, they've been spearheading fighting the weakening of child labor laws around the country. They're the ones leading this. And it's because nobody, no adults don't want to work for subminimum wages anymore. There's a massive staffing crisis. So they're trying to pass laws so that minors, children can work till nine o'clock at night in bars, can serve alcohol. These are the family values people trying to get minors to serve alcohol. Disgusting. All because they are refusing to pay these people a minimum wage. And they have been for 100 years. Jenny, at the risk of sounding like a harassing customer, uh, can we see your, your shirt? Moms demand one fair wage. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're at the event in Queens right now? Yes, we just got here. And this is the big letter we delivered to the legislators. What does it say? It says a Mother's Day. A Mother's, a Mother's Day, Day card or to the New York State legislature. Nice. And any, any yeah. I know you, you probably, you have to leave, but any final words that you want to share with um, the, like politicians or people watching about why, what, what you would like them to do? It's time to pass one fair wage in New York in New York City. You know, like we have so many um, restaurant workers in the city, and so many are leaving, including myself. I was one of them that left. Um, we need more security, you know. Like, um, and yeah, so we need to pass one fair wage. Great, thank you so much. And what are you doing now, work wise? I became a full time organizer for one fair wage. Great. And I'm also, um, you know, first generation Dominican woman. So I, it's really special to me that I get to work with, um, um, you know, immigrants and folks that just speak Spanish. So really, you know, we're really trying to um, educate everyone, including those that, you know, might be left behind. So it's really special work that we're doing. That's great. Bilingual organizer. So useful. Okay. Any Anything else? I think shame on New York that thinks it's so progressive. Shame on you. There's already seven states that have hopped on board. There's seven more waiting to, to do it. And you don't want to be left behind because of a few jerks that are, you know, bowing to the corporate money. And shame on our governor for not paying attention. She's, she's got a, you know, I don't care what her husband does. Shame on her. And, um, you know, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I raised my kids here. And I was shocked to find out that New York is so behind. I felt so you know, so proud of so many things about New York, and this is just terrible. So, um, New Yorkers, step up, step up. Again, you can find out more about One Fair Wage at onefairwage.site and their New York campaign at onefairwage.site slash New York. And now, here is part of my Patreon-only interview with economist Richard Wolf. 
You will definitely want to see the full interview at Patreon because not only does he share his insights about the primary and Marianne Williamson and Bobby Kennedy, but he also talks about how the United States could prepare for the collapse of empire. And again, you can find that full interview at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Richard Wolf, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Always love talking to you. Well, I'm very glad to be here. So let's start off talking about the debt ceiling. Can you explain to people what is happening, whether the debt ceiling needs to be raised, and if this is a substantive issue or is this all political theater? Well, it's 99% political theater. Uh, 1%, that's a stretch, substance. And the easiest way to understand it is simply to explain what's going on. The United States Congress has the responsibility of raising money for all the things that the federal government does and making a decision about how the spending is going to happen. So among the other things they decide is how much are we going to raise in taxes and how much are we going to spend? And now we get to the real complicated arithmetic. If you want to spend X dollars, then you have to tax that amount in order to be able to spend it. This is not rocket science. The Congress, handling both sides, decides on the taxes we all pay, businesses and individuals, and decides on what the money is going to be spent for. Social security, uh, student loans, a war, whatever it is that the government, federal government does. Now, of course, you have to remember the political economy of American capitalism, which puts the politicians, the Congress people, in a very weird place. Why? Well, because businesses on the one hand and the population on the other want the government to do things for them, to help their businesses, to subsidize them, to give them cheap loans, a whole lot of things. And the public would like, you know, pension for their elderly folks, and all the rest. At the same time, the businesses and the, and the individuals don't want to pay taxes. So the politician is caught. If the politician wants donations from corporations, you better not tax them, and you better deliver them the services they want. And pretty much the same for the mass of people especially because the mass of people are taxed up to here over the last hundred years and really can't give you any more. The corporations could, but they have the money to donate to the politicians to make sure that they don't. Bottom line, the way the politicians navigate this impossible situation is by spending as much as people want and not taxing, particularly the corporations and the rich, who are the only ones who could really give money to the government. And how do they manage it? Here we go. By borrowing. They borrow the difference from the uh, uh, the difference between what they're raising in taxes, which they've kept down, and what they're spending, which they've kept up. And by the way, Republicans and Democrats all do this pretty much the same. Differences of emphasis, not much. But this now has gotten out of hand over the last 50 years. Why? Because the politicians keep borrowing so they can spend their way to be reelected without taxing the the people who have the money to 
to give them. And here comes an irony, which if Americans understood it, we would see a big political change. When the government does not tax corporations and the rich and instead borrows the money that it doesn't tax, who do you think it borrows from? Well, here's the irony. It borrows from corporations and the rich. Nobody else is available to make a loan to the government other than other countries, and they are important lenders to the United States government. But the bulk of it comes from corporations and the rich, which means if you understand that the way our system works, it gives the corporations and the rich low taxes, but then borrows the money it didn't tax from them, from them instead, promising to give it back to them after a few years and to pay them nice interest payments every year between the time they borrow it and the time they pay it back. So for corporations and the rich, of course, they would prefer to lend the money to the government rather than have the government tax them. So when you hear lamentations about borrowing from corporations and the rich, don't pay it any mind. Those are crocodile tears. They are making out like bandits, having the government borrow from them rather than tax them, which is what it could do. So bad has this gotten that over the years, the Congress is beginning to worry, as are the whole world, that the American government is borrowing out of control. As it is, the United States is the world's biggest debtor country. We have borrowed more money from the rest of the world than anybody else has borrowed from anybody in, in our planet at this time. We are a heavily indebted country, becoming rapidly more so very quickly. And that's worrying all kinds of people because the day may come, they fear, when the government will be stuck. It will not be able to tax us as people because we understand that more and more of our taxes are not going to pay for any government service. It's simply being collected by Washington and handed over to corporations and the rich who've been the lenders to the government all these years. So to look like they were doing something about it, the Congress erected a ceiling. Notice it's the same Congress that decides what to spend and how much to tax that puts a ceiling on its own out-of-control borrowing. But of course, that changed nothing. So over and over again for the last 20 years, they've raised the ceiling to allow them to continue to borrow. It's absurd. It's a kind of uh, make-believe, and it's major theater making the Congress look like they're terribly concerned. And that's where we are now. They kept borrowing, so they're bumping up against the ceiling. Now, what could be done? And here's where the dishonesty comes in. What could be done, if you followed me to this point, is that the, con the Congress could raise taxes on corporations and the rich. It's what they should have done anyway for 20 years, but the corporations and the rich are flush with money more than they've had in probably their entire history right now. So there the money is there, tax it, then you won't have to borrow, so the ceiling becomes symbolic and irrelevant, and you've solved your problem. You haven't gone further into debt, you haven't violated the ceiling, you've done what you should have done. 
But that's not going to happen because neither Republicans nor Democrats dare go to corporations and the rich and raise the taxes. The minute they do that, all the donations from corporations and the rich, all the lobbyists will go to whoever's running against the folks in Congress and replace them with more pliable folks who will do in the future what they've done in the past. The sad thing is that the Democratic Party, which might hypothetically have been open to some serious taxing of corporations in the rich, gave up. So what we have is a very weird and dishonest conversation in which the Republicans say the way to solve the problem is to cut social spending on every kind of program for poor people, for Medicare, for Medicare, all of it. Versus the Democrats who say, no, that's terrible. We don't want to do that. So let's raise the ceiling and keep borrowing more. This is a choice between two awful alternatives, even though a much better alternative is there, but neither the Democrats nor the Republicans are willing to go out and really run a campaign to deal with this problem in an honest way. I don't doubt that if you went to the American people, and I mean this, and I study Gallup polls and Ipsos polls and all the others, the vast majority of Americans would tomorrow support and endorse a program that doesn't have the government borrow more, that doesn't have the government cut social spending, but solves the problem by taxing corporations and the rich. It is long overdue. It's very popular. And nothing illustrates the capture of our government by big business in this country and the folks it makes wealthy than this spectacle of a debate between two options that are not the only options and should never be presented that way. I'm particularly disappointed, I might mention to you, in watching my classmate, Janet Yellen, she and I got our PhDs together at Yale at the same time, watching her go out there and say what she was taught and I was taught is very different from what's coming out of her uh party mouth at this point. And what are you referring to in particular? What what was what well, she's she saying that you weren't taught? She's what we were taught is that the Congress can raise taxes. Right. That there right. might be many good reasons to do that rather than to keep borrowing and thereby yep. damaging the credit, going through these absurd theaters of the ceiling. Right. She's pretending that that's the only option. Yeah, she to, knows what the, the real options right. are. And we were taught that to listen to her, the world will come to an end if we don't raise the ceiling. And this is this is a misrepresentation, I'm being as polite as I know how, of what the actual options are, which I was taught in the same classroom with the same books and the same professors that she was. So I know she knows better, right. but her political persona is what's dominating her at this point is the best guess I can make. Right. And Biden has signaled that he's he'd be open to cuts. So what are your thoughts on that? Only makes it even worse. He's not even willing to hold on to the demand to raise the ceiling. He's willing to compromise there too, the way he has on environmental issues in a dramatic way in recent weeks. And he's now apparently, if one can believe it, 
announcing that he will meet the Republicans halfway or something like that, cut some social programs in exchange for some increase. in the, that, That's the kind of horse trading that they have done every other time, so I wouldn't be very surprised. And all you're seeing now is uh, Janet Yellen, for example, yesterday mobilizing bankers uh, to put pressure on the Republicans and so that they can cut a little less social programs, a little more debt ceiling raise. It's pathetic. And by the way, the long-term cost of this is real. You keep borrowing money, it means more and more of the taxes you and I pay, and every American pays, will go to a government that's purely a collection agency. They're collecting our taxes and turning it over to the corporations and the rich who got away with lending to the government instead of paying taxes and now collect out. And you know, there will come a time, and that's what those folks at the top fear, when the mass of Americans will say, we're not paying taxes that become nothing other than a slightly disguised wealth redistribution from the mass of taxpayers to those who lend to the government. And, you know, and it's remarkable for me in just one more way to get the irony here. One of the largest creditors of the United States, lendered to the U.S. government, is the People's Republic of China. It's neck and neck between Japan and China, who is the biggest creditor. Well, if the Chinese own, as we know they do, in the neighborhood of $800 billion, just a little less than a trillion dollars of U.S. government debt, it means that the United States government has to pay interest to the Chinese, just like it has to pay interest to everybody else who's lent to the government. Well, if you assume, let's say, 4%, and it's at least that, well, it's about a trillion that's $40 billion a year. And now watch what's it, what that means. Taxes collected from Americans by the federal government, which puts them in a nice package and ships them off to Beijing, where they can use it for their Chinese army or any other purpose that they see fit. And we, the taxpayer, are funding an ostensible competitor's economic well-being because of the craziness of what? Of not taxing our own corporations and the rich. The irony, the dishonesty of all of this should not escape anyone's notice. Hmm. And can you talk about the process of de-dollarization? Yes. And why it's in the political discourse right now? It's in the political discourse as well it should be. Uh, it should have been before because it's been going on for a while. It's not a sudden development. It's accelerating now, and particularly as a result of the war in Ukraine, which I'll explain in a minute. Basically, here's the way to understand it. At the end of World War II, roughly 1945, all the major capitalist economies of the world, plus the Soviet Union, were in a shambles. They had been destroyed by the war, uh, in the case of uh, Western Europe and Russia, tens of millions of people had died, uh, factories wrecked, uh, economies wrecked. One country alone in the world came out of World War II in better shape than it went in, and that was the United States. No war was fought on our territory, with the exception of Pearl Harbor at the beginning, and then never again. 
And that was it, you know, far away in Hawaii. And the United States, which had unemployment, put everybody back to work. Half the people went into the military and the other half got jobs producing the uniforms and the guns and the planes for the military. So we went from a depression, the 1930s, into nearly full employment in the 1940s. The war put Americans back to work, built up our economy at the same time that all of our potential competitors, Germany, Japan, Britain, Western Europe, were destroyed. So the world in 1945 hovered around the United States. The United States had a position it had never had before in its history, never even close. It was now the king. And the U.S. dollar became the global currency. In many parts of the world, even if there was a local currency, merchants didn't want it. They wanted to be paid in dollars by their own people and on and on and on. So the dollar took on this fantastic global importance. It was, quote, as good as gold, because literally it was. It was as acceptable as a bar of gold would have been and in the way no other currency could be. It meant that all over the world, people held on to dollars. And that has to be understood for the enormous gift to the United States that entailed. Think of it this way. If we buy something real from another country, French wine or a Japanese made in Japan automobile or a software program produced in Finland or whatever it is, we pay with little green pieces of paper, dollars, that cost absolutely nothing to produce. The whole world shipped goods and services to us for our use, for our consumption, for our use to produce yet more things, and all we had to give them was a piece of paper, a cheap little green piece of paper. Even better, they didn't want to hold on to the dollar in that form because it doesn't earn you anything. So what they did was, here we go now, lend those dollars back to the United States government, getting a treasury security, which pays interest. It's a dollar object. You can convert it into dollars at a moment's notice, but it pays interest. So the government is now encouraged our politicians to borrow because the whole world is accumulating dollars. We had that situation for the whole second half of the 20th century, and it played an enormous role in the prosperity and growth this country enjoyed. No other country was in that position. The British, by the way, had had that before. The British pound had been in the 19th century what the U.S. dollar became in the 20th. Now, every country understood that. And every country was jealous of the United States because they wanted the benefit of producing little pieces of paper and expending them for real goods and services, only to have the people with the paper lend it back to their own government. This is a hustle that any other country would be, you know, desperate to enjoy. They've all wanted it, but they couldn't do it because no other country was playing the role of the United States. Now, once you understand the history, you'll understand this is not sustainable. The rest of the world isn't going to lie down and not try to replicate, to grow, 
and to be a competitor of the United States, Western Europe, even united in order to play that kind of role. And it began to be that the rest of the world, to a degree, not like the dollar, but to a degree, began using the euro starting in 2000. Even a little bit the Japanese yen, because the Japanese grew dramatically in the second half of the 20th century. But then the world changed. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but not by a lot. With the war in Ukraine, what folks have to understand is as horrible as the military battles are in the Ukraine with the destruction uh, of people and property that we see there, that's not the main war going on. The main war going on is economic, and it has to do with the United States doing something extraordinary. Obviously, it can't con directly confront Russia because that's nuclear war or the risk of it, and that, fortunately, people aren't that crazy yet. So how does the United States respond? Well, it made a choice. It's going to hit Russia with sanctions. It is going to use every e economic power it has, including the use of the dollar in the world, to go after the Russians, to deny them access to their own dollar reserves. They have dollars here in the United States backing up the Russian ruble as a currency. The United States seized that. The United States denied Russia the ability to use the dollar payment system in the world, called the SWIFT system, was set up years ago to allow transactions in dollars between people everywhere in the world. It's a major trading mechanism. They were frozen out of that. They were sanctioned. They were really, it was called the mother of all sanctions. It was a colossal policy failure. Why? Because the Russians, it turned out, had a plan for how to get around the sanctions, having been sanctioned by the United States many times in the recent past, they had plenty of experience with dealing with them, and they learned from that experience. So, for example, refusing to buy Russian oil and gas, which was a crippling attack against Russia, designed to collapse their economy because they're dependent on exports of oil and gas, what the Russians were able to do very quickly was simply sell the oil and gas somewhere else above all to India and to China. The two largest countries on earth are now energizing themselves with Russian oil and gas. That was an escape beyond anything that the West could do anything about. And the Russians have then expanded from there and large parts of the global South are now busily trading with Russia and making up for Russia for what the sanctions did against it. But along the way, every other country has seen an opportunity, which I don't think Washington foresaw. This situation allows everybody to stop depending on the dollar. And they have two reasons to do it. One, I've already mentioned, they want for themselves the benefit of having their currency work as a global currency. So they want to eat into the privilege of the U.S. dollar by advancing their own. 
But there was a second one which should have Americans very concerned. The United States dollar was what it was. It isn't anymore, but it was because the United States promised the world we will not abuse the position of the dollar. We will not weaponize it. We will not use it to pursue our particular foreign policy. You don't have to worry if you're a little African country or an Asian country or a Latin American country that the United States, a big, powerful, wealthy country, will use its global dollar position to get rid of one government and bring in another government. It won't abuse the politics of it. When the United States did that, demonized Russia and Putin and threw everything they had at him, they were sending an unmistakable message to everybody else in the world. Friend, foe, and in between. Watch out. The United States can't any longer manage the world the way it once did. And so it is abusing its role as the neutral caretaker for the world's currency by becoming a partisan user of its position. That's another reason, whether you're Indonesia or India or Brazil, to, to reduce your dependence on the dollar before fear at somebody, if not Biden, well, then maybe a Trump or whoever comes next is going to be using this against you. And so the dollar, which was already shrinking because of the things I said before, the shrinkage has accelerated now. So that for the first time since the end of the war, the World War II, less than half of the reserves held by central banks around the world are now in dollars, about 40%. Used to be 70, 80, 90%. It is now, and, and you see it everywhere. One of the biggest steps, the decision by Saudi Arabia a few months ago to stop doing what it had done for the United States, namely, declare that they would not accept payment for their oil. And remember, Saudi Arabia is the world's largest oil producer. They would only accept payment in dollars. That was an enormous boost to the dollar as a, because everybody who buys oil, which is more than half the countries of the world, have to get the dollars and use them to pay. Saudi Arabia changed its position, signed an agreement with China. They are now sending oil to China, accepting payment in Chinese yuan instead of the dollar. And with that, kind of, it's the end. And if I could make one point, Katie, it's really important. This is part of something Americans have not yet wrapped their heads around. The American empire, like every empire before it, is now shrinking. You know, empires rise, they have a flourish, they grow, it's very impressive, and at their peak, they can't imagine that it won't last forever. It never has. Every empire, the Greek, the Roman, the Persian, the Turkish, the, you fill in the blank, they all went up, then they went down. The ride up, British. much more fun than the ride down. We are now in the ride down, and we better be very careful because... Denial, which is the way most of America is so far dealing with it, is not a solution. 
It doesn't go away because you pretend it isn't happening. The dollar's decline is a literal barometer week in and week out of what we're seeing. The failure in Ukraine is another one. I mean, you've got to see we didn't win in Vietnam. We didn't win in Afghanistan. We didn't win in Iraq. You can dance around it 20 different ways, but it is the truth. This is not an argument about who's the good guys and the bad guys. I'm just explaining where we are not facing a decline that is underway and that is showing us its face if only we're willing to see it. And we could have a, quote, decent, soft landing. Empires do not have to go out in a horrible explosion. They can decline. Britain, not that they're a model, but after trying twice to stop the United States in the War of Independence and again the War of 1812, the British figured out we can't do this militarily, and they came to terms with their decline and being replaced by the American empire. I don't know what's coming next. I don't know whether the Chinese will be the next empire or whether it'll be handled in a multinational way. And there's some evidence in both directions. But the United States is not able to do what it did. And one of the greatest mistakes empires in the past have made is overreaching when they can't do that anymore And my fear is we're at a very delicate point in that process, hampered by a denial of what's going on that periodically frightens me. Again, to see that full interview where Professor Richard Wolf talks about lots of fascinating things, including his thoughts on the Democratic primary and Marianne Williamson and Bobby Kennedy and how to prepare for the collapse of empire and the French protests, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much, everyone, for watching. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to join the Patreon. And don't forget to save the date, June 10th, for a live taping of the Katie Helper Show with special guest, Brianna Joy Gray. Thank you so much, Brad Bloom, Tyler Sullivan, and Phantom Asfanta. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.